I'm Janie, for anybody who doesn't, another person on staff. And um, does there anybody in here who, um, you guys can hand out those outlines right now if you want to. Does anybody know your Wu-Tang name? Does anybody know it? A couple people do. All right. Um, my Wu-Tang name is Midnight Criminal, which I think is pretty... It's pretty apt. So Wu-Tang, if you don't know, Wu-Tang Clan was a rap group that started in the 90s in New York City. Um, and there's a, there's, a, there's a clan of them. There's a bunch of them. That's why they're called Wu-Tang Clan. And they all have just crazy, crazy names. The ones that, are, that you guys might know are most familiar with are Reza and, uh, thanks there, that's great. And uh, Method Man, he was also part of Wu-Tang Clan. So we're going to do a little Wu-Tang name generating this morning for you guys, because there is a Wu-Tang name generator. Is there anybody who wants to know what their Wu-Tang name is? Haley Monson. Isaac's going to type it in for us. Zexy Professional. <laughs> that's a pretty great Wu-Tang name. Anybody else? Want to know? Jordan Macabon. Just spell it phonetically. <laughs> Magabon. Sure. What do we got? Midnight Dreamer. That's Jordan. Does anybody else want to know? Court. Court Captain. What's Court's Wu-Tang name? Phantom Commander. That's pretty good. Lindsay Howard? Lindsay Howard. Let's get with Lindsay Howard. Lazy ass lover. <laughs> we need another one quick. We gotta erase that one. We gotta erase that one. We got McKenna Janet. Janash. 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 McKenna. Janash. Janet. Is that right? How do you? Just do it phonetically. That's good. <laughs> Gentleman Desperado. All right, so if you don't know your Wu-Tang name, I highly suggest that you figure out what it is. Um, let's do Ryan Church. I don't remember what his is. I think we looked it up at some point. Master Ninja. I shouldn't have done that. That's going to go to his head. Forget that we did that. I also love that when you enter your name and you press the button, the button says, enter the Wu-Tang. So... <laughs> Anyways, uh, Wu-Tang Name Generator, it's pretty fun to kind of figure out what our identity might be, and this morning we're going to talk about identity. What is it that defines who we are? I think so often we would love to kind of take on our alias. You know, I would love um, Midnight Criminal to be something I could take on as my identity, because it can be really confusing in the world that we live in to know what is my identity, what defines who I am, um, how do I understand who I am, and how does the world understand who I am? And I think that what we're going to look at this morning as we are looking at the next section of this prayer that Jesus prays in John chapter 17 is that in our identity, the most important thing we have to remember is that we are God's. It's one of the things that we forget quickest. It's one of the hardest things for us to remember um, but that is our identity. We are gods. So I'm going to start by taking some time to um, uh, look at the prayer again. 
Ryan got to start us last night looking um, at the first few verses of John 17. And this prayer happens when Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. They've been spending a bunch of time together. Um, he, was, he was eating with them. He was teaching them. He also served them by washing their feet. And now Jesus is praying in front of them. And he wants us, the reader, to hear what it is that's being prayed. And I think it's important to note that as uh, what's happened in the previous chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16 of John, um, the tone doesn't change at all when it moves into John 17. Jesus talks like he did in the previous convos, which is interesting to think about when it comes to prayer. Um, as he's with the disciples, he talks the same way that he talks to Jesus. He just changes who he's talking to. And we are simply listening in as Jesus is praying. So we're going to look, John 17, starting at verse 6. Um, and one of the things I want you to pay attention to is how often Jesus says them, because when he says them, he's talking about the disciples. So that means when he's, when he's talking about them, the disciples, he's talking about us. He says them a lot. So let's take a, take a look at that, starting at verse 6. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and now they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. For they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. So what is it that Jesus is praying? And not only that, what is Jesus praying that he wants us to know? He wants us to over, overhear. Ultimately, Jesus prays for his disciples and for us that we will be grounded in the truth that Jesus is the center of everything our mission, our guidance, our lives, our identity. That's what Jesus is praying on our behalf. And with Jesus at the center, he's praying that our relationship with God might look like his relationship with God. That's what he's asking God for. So let's look at a boiled down version of what Jesus says. Verses 6 through 13, Holy Father, please keep them in your name that you gave me. 14 to 16, please keep them from the evil one. And 17 to 19, which we'll look at tonight, please sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
It's pretty amazing that so much time before Jesus goes to the cross, something that he was really nervous about, he's really afraid of, so much time before Jesus goes to the cross, he prays for us. I think this is a truth about Jesus and God that we don't own about our identity enough. It's what they're about. If you were to ask Jesus, Jesus, what are you about? He'd say, I'm about them, right? That's what he's about. He's about us. What does it mean for your identity, who you understand yourself to be, that Jesus took time to pray for you before he went to the cross? Some other things I noticed right off the bat as I was reading this that I want to point out. Um, in verse 13, he wants us to be listening. He says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. He wants us to be listening in. And then also, sorry, my nose is going around. You're just going to have to live with it. Um, before asking anything for the disciples, he and God like he does in verse 11, he and God are just kind of having a chat about the disciples. And one of the things he says, I don't know if you caught this, is he says, God, you gave them to me as a gift. Now we might think of the fact that Jesus gives us to God as a gift, but we never think of the reverse. Jesus says, you gave them to me as a gift. He considers us a gift from God to him. And the language of this prayer is very personal. That's the last thing that I noted. It's permeated with the personal. Janie, uh, Janie, oh my gosh, that's my name. Jesus. <laughs> it might be a Freudian slip, but we can analyze it later. I don't know. Um, Jesus addresses God as you and your a bunch of times. He talks about himself in the first person like over 50 times. He talks about the disciples over 40 times. In the midst of this prayer, it's permeated with the personal. And it's interesting because this is probably the best example of great triangulation that you could have. You know, in social psychology, triangulation is like the worst thing you can do. When two people are in a relationship, to have this third person that can triangulate a conflict between the other two people, like you don't want that. But this is what Jesus wants. He wants to triangulate us in his relationship with God. That's how we should understand what Jesus is doing in this prayer. And he gives us access to knowledge that we might not otherwise be, be privy to, knowledge of God. He's basically saying, since I have made your name known, God, they have come to know the truth about who I am. And I want to point out four truths that Jesus says about himself that I think are the center of what we believe. It's really easy in the midst of, if you're involved in, in the church or ministry, to kind of get caught up in all these other elements that people argue about, like what your worship style should look like, or are you a Republican or a Democrat? Would Jesus be a Republican or Democrat, right? Like all these things about the church. And sometimes I'm just like, wait, what do we believe? What's important? What are the essentials? And these, these are four things I think are, are some essentials. The first one from verse, verse seven, Jesus says, everything you gave to me and that they have experienced in me comes from you, God. The disciples came to realize gradually over the course of Jesus' ministry that everything that Jesus was doing that was impressing them meant he was God. He must be God. That's what the disciples discovered. Jesus is a man in front of them, and Jesus is divine. The second truth, that the words you gave to me are the very words I gave to them, and they have accepted them as the word of God. Jesus' words are God's word. The third truth, 
from verse 8 that I really came down from your very side. In verse 8 where it says, they knew with certainty that it came from you, the word translated with certainty is from the Greek word alethos, which means not just symbolically or mythically, but really. Jesus came from God. And then the fourth truth, that they have come to believe you sent me. Believe is a very important word here. The emphasis where John, where John intended it in the Greek in writing this was, they have come to believe that you and no one else has sent me, Jesus, and no one else. Jesus is God sharing himself with the world, God's rescue mission for the world. That is what Jesus is saying about who he is. These four truths that Jesus is God, that Jesus' words are God's words, that Jesus came from God, that Jesus is God's rescue mission for the world. These things, plus the cross and resurrection, that is what we believe as followers of Jesus. And in some ways, that is all we need to know for what it is that Jesus is calling the disciples to do in the world and what it is that God has for us to do in the world. And it's what Jesus wants us to believe in order that we share a relationship with God in the same way that Jesus has a relationship with God. And we share in God's rescue mission for the world. When we believe in these four truths in the cross and resurrection, we know who we are and we know whose we are. That is our identity. That is what God, Jesus is communicating in this prayer to God. Now, I think communicating these truths in a prayer is not the only reason Jesus has them listen in, because he could have just taught these truths, but he didn't. He prayed these truths, and I think it's because there's something special in the relationship between God the Father and Jesus the Son. Jesus says in verse 11, everything that is mine is yours, what is yours is mine, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus and the Father so belong to each other that they are like no other two realities and that they are one together. This prayer has echoes of the Shema, which is in the Old Testament. Um, Shema is the Hebrew word for hear or listen, and it's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's one of the most important parts in all of Scripture for ancient Israel. So if we look at Deuteronomy chapter 6... Fourth verse, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The Lord is one. That's what Jesus says, so that they can be one as we are one. The Shema is so important in the Israelite faith, and they would say it day and night. It's six words, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. God as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. And they would say it over and over again, the Lord is one. So they would remember not only that their God is one, and the love that their God has in that oneness is the same love that God had for them as Israelites. Their God loved them. They were their God's beloved. And that's the same thing that Jesus is praying, that we would know the love that God has, the, the love between the Father and Son would be the love that we would have we would experience that ourselves. They would say it day and night. They would write it on their doorposts. Um, and it was just the heart of who they were. George Hinman, the pastor of UPC, uh, senior pastor, says the Shema is calling us to get so close to God 
that we can hear God's heartbeat. A heartbeat of love. A recent study in the Journal of Neonatal um, Medicine of Premature Babies discovered that what will increase the resilience of a premature baby in the incubator above everything else, what will help it grow, is a recording of its mother's heartbeat. Not even the real thing, just a recording of the mother's heartbeat. It gives it strength. It gives it life. It gives the baby love. And I think that Jesus is letting the disciples listen into this prayer for a similar reason. The relationship between the Father and the Son is for our sake. It's for us, so that we can know the love that they have between one another and know that that same love is the love that God has for us. That same love is accessible to us through Jesus. It's an unconditional, beloved love. That is our identity. Before Jesus does anything in starting his ministry, one of the first things that happens is he is baptized. And it says in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. My beloved. It's because of that same identity as one beloved that Jesus is pulling the disciples into listening to this prayer. It's why he's letting us overhear the prayer as well. But Jesus knows there are so many things in this world that are pulling us away from that identity as one who's beloved, as one whose love is the same as that between God, the Father, and the Son. And so that's why the next section of his prayer is that we could fight against what pulls against our identity. Here's what he says in the next section, just kind of um, bullets. Holy Father, protect them. By the power of your name, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. There are millions of things in this world demanding our attention, calling out to us to help us stake our identity, right? Our Wu-Tang name, our aliases that we might want to take on as our identity. It might be something like... um, like a word cloud, I think I have a picture of a word, word cloud, that like we think the things that we like and what we do defines who we are. This person, Lucy, liked, likes classic rock, I think. But so word cloud, right? What is our identity? Is it what we do? Um, is it what we like? Or actually, um, another example is this Red Lobster survey. It's asking about Red Lobster. One of the, uh, one of the things says... Red Lobster helps define who I am. I don't know who that person is, but I would like to meet them. Or by creating our own identity, right? We want to put ourselves out there by creating our own identity. I think this happens a lot through social media, like Snapchat and Instagram. I'm not demonizing them like, oh, these crazy kids with their social media. They're not bad things. But I think we can sometimes obsess about the identity that we're expressing to the world 
by always wanting to make sure that we have the right things shown on social media. And even our identity as a follower of Jesus can um, just be about how other people might perceive it. Is this fish tattoo, is that too subtle? Should I get something like, should I get like the Shema like tattooed on my back? Great idea. (laughs) When you examine your own life, what defines your identity? If someone were to look at your life, someone were to look at your life, what would they say is your identity? Jesus is praying against the things of this world that pull us away from the truth, that we are gods. We are beloved. In the culture that you operate in as college students, I think you're told the way to know your identity is most often prove it, earn it, be successful, work hard, let everyone see how you do. Then you will be beloved, maybe. Oh, you're impressed by that? Oh, that's just how I do, you know. There are loud voices, seductive voices, telling you your identity is what you do, how you look, how successful you are, and they offer affirmation, productivity, which feels great, and they're telling you go out and prove something. And there might be love there, there might be love as a result, but it is always conditional. As one who knows, as one who knows (laughs) and believes that I am beloved, I am God's, I can honestly say those voices are still there for me. See if you can relate to this narrative. What Jesus refers to as the evil one is the voices that reach into my mind and tell me that I should doubt my goodness. I shouldn't be sure of my own worth. They suggest I'm not going to be loved until I earn it with hard work, As long as I remain in touch with the voice that calls me beloved, those other voices are harmless. They're there and they probably always will be, but I can ignore them because God's voice of love is always louder. But when I forget to listen to God's voice of love, when I forget the truth that I'm beloved, the innocent suggestions of these other voices that I should doubt that I'm good enough they start to sound pretty good. They start to make sense. My story of when Jesus became real to me is actually similar to what Emily and Katie shared last night. I really resonated with their short, with their stories. Um, and unlike Ryan Church, who says he often engaged in garden variety fraternal hedonism, unlike him, I behaved perfectly. I had perfect hair, uh, perfect relationships, perfect behavior, perfect grades. God and I had an arrangement. I, I set it up, but it worked well. Do everything right, God would love me. And I was in graduate school uh, living in New Jersey when it all started to crack. I was really lonely. A relationship I was in ended horribly. One of my best friends passed away. And all this other stuff started happening at once. It was like this atomic bomb just and I no longer could do everything right. I stopped doing my schoolwork, was failing my classes. I stopped going to my job. I went from perfect to pathetic. 
And my productive, controlled life started to crack and crumble, and these emotions that were kept perfectly in check kind of came to the surface. And I was like, what is this salty discharge that I'm experiencing? I remember feeling like I was at the bottom of a pit, and I just started praying, God, our arrangement, it's not working anymore. I don't know if you've noticed I've been a slave to doing everything right, and now um, I look at myself and I'm exposed as a a failure-fearing loser who doesn't deserve God's love. And I remember a friend being the voice of God to me gave me a quote from youth pastor um, and author Mike Iaconelli, and it was speaking directly to me. He wrote, I finally heard what God had been trying to communicate to me the whole time. Michael, I'm here. I've been calling you, but you haven't been listening. Can you hear me, Michael? I love you. I have always loved you. And I have been waiting for you to hear me say that to you. But you have been so busy trying to prove to yourself you're loved that you have not heard me. That last line really got me. You have been so busy trying to prove to yourself that you're loved that you haven't heard me. I had totally understood, misunderstood what it meant to follow Jesus for years. And I came to realize it was in my brokenness, in my weakness, in powerlessness that Jesus was made strong. And I realized God just wanted to pull me into relationship so that I would know what love and life really were. What has this meant for my life? Honestly, if you looked at the map of my life, you probably wouldn't even perceive much differences. But besides a lot of opportunities of messing up. But I can tell you that it feels very different now. And at that moment, for the first time in my life, I heard, Janie, I love you. You are beloved. And that's made all the difference. The voice of God speaks to us in so many ways Do you tune into it? Do you accept it to be true about you, that you are beloved, that you are included in this love that God has with Jesus? Or do you deny it and forge your own identity? Jesus has made it clear the same voice he heard from God throughout his ministry and in this prayer is available to us. And God is always looking for you. Janet mentioned this in her prayer. God is always looking for you. So as soon as you realize that he wants to tell you you are loved, he is going to be there to say, you are my beloved. And the big question, I think, is how? How can I hear the voice of God to know that I am loved? How? Well, show up. God is already there. So all you need to do is be present. Go to God in prayer. Spend time with God. Jesus says that we've been given God's word. Go to scripture. That is an amazing way to know that you are beloved by God. Spend time with other people in a small group or just in general for them to be able to speak into your life the voice of God's love. Bring your whole self, bring your sins, bring your struggles, bring yourself to God and give yourself time to listen to what God might be saying to you. If we don't, how are we going to know that we are under God's protection? How are we going to hear the heartbeat of God? What Jesus prays in verse 12, um, 
while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe. It reminds me of what Jesus um, says about himself in John chapter 10, one of his I am statements. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. If we want to know we are beloved, we have to stay close to the one who loves us. This idea of Jesus as a shepherd, I think is a good one to understand more. I think we have a, oh, a picture, yeah. Um, is a good one to understand more of the love that God has for us. So if Jesus is a shepherd and we're all a sheep, we're in a big field and it's fenced off, right? There's boundaries at the edges of this field, but the sheep can wander all over and still see the shepherd. And the shepherd loves his sheep. He identifies with them. He wants them to know they are loved, they are adored. So he tells them all the time that they are his prized sheep. In our field, let's assume some of the sheep have gone as far away from the shepherd as they can get, right? Out to the edges, out to the boundaries. And maybe these are what we would call the rebel sheep, right? These sheep are bad. There is. That's Sean the sheep. Sean the sheep's no good. It's a little like asking, how far away can I get and still see the shepherd? How far away can I get and still hear the shepherd? It's a a question that a lot of students will ask when it comes to like a physical relationship with their boyfriend or girlfriend. How far is too far? The goal is to determine how far away can I get and still look back and kind of see the shepherd on the horizon. He's still there. I can kind of hear what he's saying. But these sheep usually find themselves in precarious situations and they're stumbling a lot. And then you have these other sheep who are straining themselves beyond belief to get noticed by the shepherd. And I have an example of this from Sean the sheep as well. We have a demonstration from Sean the sheep of a shepherd who's trying to see everybody to see him. Go ahead. spent a lot of time watching Sean the Sheep with my five-year-old niece, so it's changed my life, really. (laughs) But at the end of that, Sean gets perfect tens, but he's exhausted, right? And these sheep are trying so hard to be the most loved sheep in the field by earning it, and they're constantly like, look at me, look at me, look at me, check me out, I'm great, aren't I doing great? Aren't I the greatest sheep you've ever seen, Shepherd? It's like people who fear failure, so they do everything perfectly because they want to earn the shepherd's love. 
and but they're so busy they can't really hear what the shepherd is saying to them. And finally, there's a third group of sheep, and they are all next to the shepherd, as close as they can get, like right up in his joint. And as a staff, we've been reading um, a book about Psalm 23 from the perspective of an actual shepherd. And here's um, the picture that I have of Jesus as the shepherd. I think he has like a staff in his hand. Um, So anyways, just the idea of what a staff does. There are three areas of sheep management in which the staff plays a most significant role. The first of these lies in drawing sheep together into an intimate relationship. The shepherd will use his staff to gently lift a newborn lamb and bring it to its mother if they become separated. Secondly, in precisely the same way, the staff is used by the shepherd to reach out and catch individual sheep, young or old, and draw them close to himself for intimate examination. The staff is very useful this way for the shy and timid sheep that normally tend to keep at a distance from the shepherd. And finally, the staff is also used for guiding sheep. Again and again, I have seen a shepherd use his staff to guide a sheep gently into a new path or through some gate or along dangerous, difficult routes. Sometimes I've been fascinated to see how a shepherd will actually hold his staff against the side of some sheep that is a special pet or favorite, simply so they are in touch. They will walk along this way almost as though they were hand in hand. The sheep obviously enjoys this special attention from the shepherd and revels in the close, personal, intimate contact between them. To be treated in this special way by the shepherd is to know comfort in a deep dimension. The sheep close enough to be guided by his staff are looking up at him and can see the look of love on the shepherd's face. They are basking in the reality that they belong to him. When when the shepherd speaks and he tells his sheep which way to go, gives them direction on how to live, which sheep are going to hear what the shepherd has to say? Which sheep are going to see the expression on his face? And which sheep are going to be close enough and quiet enough to hear the heartbeat of the shepherd. Our identity is not built on how far away we can get from Jesus and still kind of sort of be in relationship with Jesus. Our identity is not built on everything that we can do to earn it, make ourselves look as impressive as possible for Jesus to want to be in relationship with us. It's built on being as close as we can so that we can know that we are truly beloved. Is your identity that you are God's? What do you need to draw closer? To hear the heartbeat of God's love in your life to remind you that you are beloved. God, we thank you that you are the good shepherd. We thank you that you draw us into relationship with you and that you are available to us again and again and again and again. God, it's our desire to know your protection. It's our desire to know your love. It's our desire to be as close to you as we can get, to hear your heartbeat, 
and know the ways in which your love for us is never-ending, never-failing. In your holy name.